This is Conversations About Foster Care. In this first season, join our conversation about transitions, removal, and coping with change, trauma, and grief. The system is made up of all of us, so let's talk about how we can do better by our kids. Hi guys, Marika here, just letting you know that there are a couple of explicit words in this episode, so if you've got little ears around, maybe listen to this one later when you're on your own. Thanks. Hi everyone, it's Kurt. And Marika. Uh, This is episode three, how the system hinders transition. Uh, We started uh, our last episode with uh, Jean, who was former foster youth. Um, The most important voice in the system is the the people who've been through it. We're now going to move on to another foster parent, a bit like us, but someone who's had a lot more experience with us. She's had more than one placement, um, though we are going to focus on just one for the sake of this interview. But the reason we're including her in this series is because Liz has become... Um, a real advocate. Um, she is. She's out there after her experiences, which were truly uh, quite traumatic and challenging. And rather than just um, feel despondent about that, she's trying very hard to to become a voice for change, a voice for these kids. She's out there contacting her local politicians and representatives, and is quite determined to um, try and make the system and, and transitions for kids better. So here's Liz. Hi, Liz. Hi, Ricky. How are you? How, I'm well. How are you? I'm well. I, I, I was just saying to Kurt, I'm so happy that you guys are taking this on. I realize that it's, you know, probably bringing up a lot of pain, you know, that you're still, yeah. you know, but it's such a brave and important project, and, and I, I applaud you guys for doing it. Oh, thank you for saying that. I, I really appreciate that, and uh, I guess... As you probably understand, the reason we're doing it is because we're all in this community together and we've all got to try and find ways to have a better dialogue, I think, about how we handle these situations with these kiddos because they deserve better, you know? Yeah. They do, and they're completely voiceless. And, you know, I think it's sort of up to us to, you know, because we're in the trenches with the children, you know, we Mm -hmm. have to, you know, we have to speak for them. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about, I know you've had a couple of kiddos in your care. Um, tell me a little bit about the children you've parented and for how long and, and just the basics of, of those cases. Okay, well, um, we have an 11-year-old biological daughter mm-hmm. and we decided to foster because um, we were trying to grow our family, but we also saw it after exploring many different ways to do that as sort of the best fit for us. Our first placement was a wonderful little boy who was just an mm-hmm. exceptional, exceptional child. And we had a horrific experience with two different agencies. But the children in our home have been incredible. So yeah. our experience with foster care is kind of like opening up this very dark... It's almost like getting a glimpse into a very, very dark world and being so shocked and appalled that we're sort of forever connected to that world, whether we have a child in our home or not. It's almost like you you see a terrible car accident and you can't look away and you feel like you have to do anything, but everything is in slow motion, you know, and both placements left us with a terrible feeling of helplessness that was completely separate from our desire to grow a family. Yes, um, and I think that would be pretty common. I mean, certainly with lots of our friends who who have gone into the foster care system to be foster parents, 
you know, would would have similar feelings and certainly um, very challenging feelings with the agency and and uh, just all the situations we've heard of. I think I think you're not alone in how how you feel there. We got this call that a little boy that looked like parental rights were going to be terminated, mm-hmm. and he was three years old. And you know, as as it goes, I'm sure you know. Slowly, more information came out. And we, we thought about it and we were like, well, three-year-olds, you know, that's not really what we signed up for, but let's do it. You know, let's, yeah. just, let's just do it. And it turned out that he was coming from the ICU and that oh. he, he was coming with a pretty severe head injury and he had uh, some internal injuries. Oh, wow. And... He had survived a, hor- a horrific beating by his mother's boyfriend. And mm-hmm. all of this sort of came out, you know, in little drips. We were told that the agency was very much behind terminating parental rights because this wasn't the first incident of abuse and, and mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, this was a good situation for us because in foster care, as you all well know, it's rare to have a very young child in this situation. And so we were like, you know, very naively, we said, okay, we'll, we'll yeah. do this. And I'll never forget the night he arrived because he was brought to our home by a very young caseworker who was completely inexperienced. <laughs> and he had I'm, no shame. I'm giggling really, because it's so familiar, this story, but yes, I'm sorry. And, he, and it was February and he had no shoes. And no winter coat. And he had, you know, basically, you know, a bag full of his belongings, but no shoes and no winter coat in February. And the next day, I mean, I feel so naive telling you the story, but the next day we were taking him to a puppet show at at our daughter's school because we thought he would enjoy that. And Eli, my partner, had to run out and buy a pair of shoes, and we called everyone we knew to try to get him some shoes. The caseworker told us that she threw out his clothes at the hospital because he had um, peed on them. But she didn't provide us with With any backup. Mm. Our foster son was African-American, and so here Eli's got him in a stroller with no shoes on. In February, he's wearing our daughter's, like, cast-off coat, like running around to stores trying to get him shoes before the puppet show. And everyone's looking at him like, you know, did he steal his head? Um, so that was the way we started the relationship with this agency. And, and how long did you have your foster son for? Well, we had him two different times, but both placements were very short, um, just a few okay. months. And it became very clear early on that they weren't going to terminate parental rights anytime soon. And then he had a bunch of siblings mm-hmm. that he, that were his consistent thread. And, you know, there was no way that was going to happen. And um, we really just wanted the best for him. We wanted him to be reunited with his siblings. So there was no bad feelings about the fact that this placement, you know, wasn't, he wasn't going to be adoptable. But what ended up happening in this process um, was, just absolutely shocking. So we learned, you know, along the way that when you have a a child that's been sexually or physically abused the way our foster son had, that you need special certifications. 
Yeah. And that we didn't have those special certifications. So they just placed him with us anyway. You have to you have to understand this is our first placement. Yeah, wow. And his first night with us, we didn't have a crib for him or a toddler bed. And I, you know, I'm a mom. I have some experience with small children. But he wailed like a dying, like a wounded animal all night long in his sleep. Yeah. I mean, because that's trauma. And so you, yeah. So we, you know, we moved past that. I held his hand all night, and mm. we moved past that. And so how much notice did you have? Because your situation is quite unusual, and we haven't talked to anyone who's had a situation where you've parented, and then a child has transitioned somewhere else, and then come back into the home. So can you tell me a little bit about um, the, time, the time frame? How much warning did you have that he would be going... Did they support you through that transition? Oh, no. I mean, we had no support. What happened was he came to us that February, and he really thrived in our home because this was the first time he'd been in foster care, completely alone without any of his siblings. Right. And and his siblings were girls, and he was sort of targeted by his mother's boyfriend. It was a homeless shelter situation, like, where they were in a hotel room and isolated, and and she would have these boyfriends that would sort of fixate on him being the only little boy. Mm. So he really thrived, got a lot of attention with us, and he got he got along with our daughter like kind of like a sibling. You know, they, they sort of yeah. interacted in a very natural way. And, you know, we enjoyed caring for him, and he got sort of better in, in terms of, you know, adjusting to being in this home. He had major um, attachment issues where he would go up and hug strangers. Right. And that was, that you know, in the playground and stuff. And, and Or if we took him to the math museum, places like that. And that was scary, you know, and that yeah. was attachment stuff. But he was doing really well with us. And then he went to another home, I believe, with one of his siblings, which was good. In the so another... Just let me clarify, another foster family said they could take him with a, a biological sibling, and so that was the reason for the removal. Yeah, but they placed him in a, in a Spanish-speaking-only home. Right. They couldn't understand his foster parents at all. Wow. And then his sister was reunited. His older sister was reunited with his mother, and he came back to us. What had happened was he was at a McDonald's, and he wet his pants as, you know, a little kids do. His mother's boyfriend nearly beat him to death. The restaurant called 911, and his mother's reaction to this was that she protected the boyfriend. Now, it's sort of unclear whether there was major domestic violence going on, and that was, you know, Uh that that was why she behaved the way she does. So I'm not quite sure what the legal reasons were, but she was reunited with some of her children, but not all of them. So we had him for a while, and he did very well with us, and then he went to the Spanish-speaking family for about three weeks, and they were, you know, they were really good people. It's just that he couldn't understand them. He was only with the the next foster family for three weeks. It was a short. I I don't want to be quoted on the amount of time, but it was a short amount of time. Okay, yeah, wow. Because we then got him again for a second placement that spring, and he was with us through Easter, and I think he was with us, oh, maybe two months, something like that. And were you and the new foster mother given each other's contact details to try and make that transition smoother for him? Were you able to talk to each other to swap <laughs> bedtime ritual or any of that kind of thing? 
we were never connected with our foster son's birth mother or any foster family that he was involved with. He did not have a life book, and there was no connective. There was no, you know, when you do your map classes, they tell you that this is so important. Yes. He had a Spider-Man figurine, and that was was it. That was the most important sort of comfort toy for him. We did see his mother and his siblings at visits, but we had no contact with them. They deliberately separate foster families from the birth families with, like, entrances and exits. Oh, that's such a shame. So you never even were able to have basic kind of polite chit-chat with the, the birth family. We set up a phone line for our foster son because his mother got pregnant again with the man who almost killed him. Wow. And he started to self-harm. Okay. And so what was that phone line? Did it allow your foster son to just call directly to his mom? We felt at the time that he needed some kind of support, and we were desperately trying to get him therapy, but the agency was resisting because they weren't funded for therapy. Right. And so they just kept telling us kids at this young age, they don't respond well to therapy. It's just sort of (laughs) play. Oh, my goodness, right. Um, eventually, they did get him a very inexperienced, I don't want to be critical of her, I think, you know, she read him a lot of books about connectivity and different okay. kinds of families and things like that, but it, this is a child that had been severely traumatized, who, who was at a stage in his life where interventions would have really made a difference for him. This is a little kid who had a lot of scars on his body from abuse, his hands had been burned, he really needed that level of attention. You know, we really felt like he had been through so much Mm. that he needed special attention, you know. He had horrible blisters on his hands that I had to treat with this, like, uh, kind of Vaseline-like balm every night. They were from his mother's boyfriend burning him as punishment with a cigarette lighter. And the way that he would talk about his abuse is that when I would bathe him, he would behave really normally most of the time, and you'd never guess if you saw him that he had gone through all the things that he'd gone through. He didn't act out except at himself. Right. But when he was in the bath, all of it would come out. And he would talk about every scar, and he would tell me the story behind it. And he'd talk about his hands, and when his, his mom's boyfriend burned him with the cigarette lighter... And his lawyer would talk about how this was frostbite and how the mom didn't mean to, but she forgot to put gloves on. And and it, it just, Eli and I were just enraged by this. Because it's lies. It's, it's a lie. Yeah. And of course she knew it was a lie, but the directive was to keep the family together, which is legal aid's thrust. And had I understood that at the time, at least I could have processed why the lies lies. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I didn't understand it. So what I did was I launched this big campaign to get him a new lawyer, a lawyer Mm -hmm. that might fight for therapy for him and, and possibly even get the family into a different agency where they could get the support they needed. And and this is all, you know, we already knew he was leaving our home. It was all sort of after the fact. And, you know, I reached out to legal aid and nobody answered me until I started copying local politicians like Corey Johnson, the public advocate at the time, Letitia James, who was very involved in foster care. And 
I had contacts with these people already from sort of advocating for fair housing and things like that. And I was really desperate. And I knew that I probably came across as kind of an asshole. But I just, I, I thought, you know, we just have to do everything we can for this kid. We don't know how yeah, things work. He's yeah. leaving. God knows if he's going to survive. So I did this big email blast, and the head of the Juvenile Division of Legal Aid reached out to me, and she said she would not communicate with me over email, only on the phone. And mm-hmm. knowing what I know about lawyers or what I knew about lawyers at the time, I just resisted that. I thought, I don't trust this. In mm-hmm. retrospect, had I known a little bit about how things worked, I would have understood a little more that they, were, they had their own narrative, and this is the directive Yep. And this is the problem that I have with foster care because the legal narrative and the policy narrative and then the reality on the ground when you're with the kid, they yes, never line different. up. That's right. Yeah, that was our experience too. And it's what made particularly my husband just so angry at times that you'd be in a courtroom and no one, absolutely no one is talking about this specific child and their specific story. And that just is mind boggling when you're, you're sitting in the room trying to advocate for this one particular kid. You know, I think the culture has to change, and I'm really on board to fight it, even though it is a fight that it's like gain an inch, it's like you have to hit your head against the wall a million times. But it's still still a fight worth fighting for because nobody is taking it on. Um, And I want to take you back to, you just said, um, you mentioned a little bit earlier that with your foster son, you knew for a time that he was leaving. How did you prepare your biological daughter? How did you as a family prepare um, your foster son and everyone in your community for that transition? And was there any way you could make that easier for him to understand or was it just he got picked up the next day and it was really sudden? I think we had a few days notice when we started talking to him about it. It was very difficult. Mm -hmm. He was angry at us. He was angry at his mom. At that point, he was talking to his mom who just had her baby, another girl. I don't know if I mentioned, but she was pregnant, and that really upset him, too. He needed support for that because she was having another baby girl. The father was the man who almost killed him, and he felt displaced. He had a younger sister already, so there were, I think, three girls and and him, and, and Mm -hmm. you know, I think we felt like we were abandoning him. And did they just come and pick him up, and it was... Pretty quick, or did was it? Did you do great? Oh, it was. Was there anything we like had? That in place? He had like a garbage bag full of stuff. We got him a, a nicer bag, but it still felt like we were, you know. Took him to the agency. Bizarrely, we had to wait there. They didn't even have anything in place to kind of take him. Like we had to wait there for about an hour with him. Nobody spoke to us about any kind of protocol or. If any of his needs. He loved this little book, Little Bear. Mm-hmm. Bizarrely, he identified with the doll in the story, I think because okay. he just was so sort of moved around. And, and so we brought him this, his book and everything, and we took him to the agency, and our daughter was with us, and it was, you know, really awful. Yeah. There was no conversation from the directors. There was no attempt to keep us or to try to explain what had transpired, why they couldn't do what we were asking, why they couldn't get in services. You know, the lack of transparency in his case was not to do with his well-being. It was to do with protecting them. Which is horrific. And I think it's very common 
Yeah. You know, that sort of selective information. They never told us he'd always been in care. We didn't learn that till we went to that court date that June. So we, you know, we were sort of told that he was thriving in our home and, you know, there was this possibility that he could stay. But he basically, he had had several placements and he'd almost died once before, but his biological father had almost killed him as well. You know, both both of those men had done jail time for beating him up. So it was uh, it was horrific, and you know we kind of, as a family, really mourned his absence in the sense that we, you know, we just worried for him. We worried we'd read about him in the paper. Um, After he was removed from your home, was there any talk by the agency about you guys staying in touch for his consistency of care going through that change? No. Yeah. But there isn't a, a day that goes by where I don't think of him. Of course, you know? that's that's love. <laughs> it doesn't switch off once a child leaves your home. How was but your we, biological daughter going through all of this in terms of her, you know, attaching to you know your foster son as a sibling and seeing the roller coaster of what, you know, it really can be a roller coaster when you have a foster placement. And how how was that change all the change for her? Our foster son really taught her empathy. Hmm. She was. Uh, she's 11 now, and we, we had him in 2016, so she was like, you know, seven or eight, yeah. and so there was an age difference with them, you know, he was turning four that June. He was kind of an annoying little brother, but she understood his situation. I don't think that his leaving was nearly as traumatic for her as our foster daughters, but I think that she she was old enough to understand that his circumstances were really difficult and like she treated him like a normal kid, which was really important. You know, so they yeah. bickered about things, they competed for attention. She got mad at him. You know, they shared a they shared a room. We only have we have a small apartment, so mm-hmm. Yeah. And she took him on play dates, so he played with her older friends, which he loved. And there was a sort of kind of sense that this was a like a long play date. I don't think she felt the loss as hard as Eli and I did because I don't think she felt, I think she was the normalizing factor for him. So anyway, oh another, I, I'm digressing again, but, but, but it was, it's something that if like I, I have a too, you know, too many drinks and I'm talking to a friend about my experience, I can never quite get across the crime that's being committed. Yeah. That you know, this issue is so important. And these kids, it's not enough to keep them alive, you know? Yeah. They're, they're like fucking them up at every turn, you know? I know, and it's really interesting to me when you hear, you know, politicians or certain, I don't know, just people in the community who don't have experience directly with foster kids and they talk about, well, you know, if they've got a roof over their head and they've got a, you know, a meal in the belly, you know, like that's, that's good, we're doing well and, and you just... Once you are connected with a child and you live this life and you see how important emotional support and therapy and really having someone to advocate for you and being loved in a way that that's everything rather than, you know, like being loved in a real like focused, you're my world kind of way is very different to just having a roof over your head and, a, and some food in your belly. It's a really, yeah, it's not enough. And, you know, family court is like the Wild West, and the judges only know what these lawyers bring to them or what ACS brings to them. They don't know the full story. Yes. And 
decisions, you know, the, the, the decisions are being made without knowing the kids, and it's a very cookie-cutter, unnuanced approach, and it's ruining lives. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So that was Liz, and we're very grateful to have talked to her. I appreciate that she was she's so quick and honest to own her naivety going into the system and the reality that really challenged her family. I also really want to applaud Liz because I think it's one thing to take a child into your home and it's another thing to love on them and then it's another thing again to support their birth or first family. You know, Liz really went the extra mile to make sure that the the kids in her care, that their family was getting the services that they needed and she was getting on the phone and fighting hard to make sure they were supported and that's not just saying I support reunification that is walking the talk and getting out there and making sure that if they are you know of course they're working towards going back to a parent that they need to that parent needs to have the supports in place to make sure that that's going to be a successful transition yeah and I think I think a lot of that is hindered with the concept of you know secrecy and and keeping the separation that the agency pretty much always tries to keep the foster parents and the birth parents separate for privacy and all that stuff. But certainly in our case, and it sounds like in Liz's cases as well, what that ends up doing is hindering the kid because then once the transition happens, the parents have no way of connecting with the birth parents or the foster parents, and it just ends up impacting the kid. Well, the secrecy also then really fosters, pardon pun, really fosters then feeling of sides and what we would really like to see. Yeah, us against them. And certainly in our case, we felt like kids' extended family member felt like we were on another side and we weren't. We were on her side. We were on the side for the kid. We wanted the kid to go to her if that was the best thing. And and we're still there. And (laughs) we... We want this feeling of sides to go away because, you know, we can't say it enough. It should be about the kid, right? So thanks for listening, guys. That's our episode for today. Please give us a five-star review or say something nice about us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The more comments and five-star ratings we get, the more iTunes wants to share that podcast around in the popularity of uh, the internet. So that'd be a big help. And if you don't have a positive uh, message for us, we'd still like to hear from you. We've called it Conversations About Foster Care because we are truly wanting to have a conversation about all this stuff, even if it's challenging or hard to hear. You can email us at conversationsaboutfostercare at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to make an inquiry about becoming a foster parent. Because every kid deserves to be loved unconditionally, even when their future is uncertain. We're the grown-ups. We can do that. And every kid is worth it. Mm